Also, uh, just a heads up, I'm recording in my closet, and uh, one of one of the cats is in here too. So, <laughs> at some at some point, that might that might come into play. So this is like a movie where they show the audience a gun. Bo might go off in the third act. Here she comes. Welcome to We Both Podcast Together, The Hazards of Loving the Decemberists. I am your host, Pete Wissinger. And I am your co-host, Matt Esner. And today we take a detour from studio albums to the world of EPs. The Decemberists throughout their career have uh, really usually done one or two sets of EPs between each studio album. Um, and we've got some doozies here. Right. Yeah, we got we got two uh, that happened chronologically uh, between... They were released between uh, Her Majesty of the Decemberists and their next album, but they were not necessarily recorded in that order. Right. So both um, are released on Kill Rock Stars in 2004. And we're going to start today with the Billy Liar EP, um, which was actually released a f- almost a year after uh, Her Majesty the Decemberists, which is weird to have this. It's only a four-song EP, two of which are songs from Her Majesty the Decemberists um, that comes out a year later. So um, I don't really know much about the recording of this, but I would assume that these two extra songs are, I would imagine, B-sides or probably from the same recording session. But I could be wrong. I'm totally talking out of my ass. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like, they sound like they would have been in the same sessions. I mean, thematically and For sure. sort of sonically, they similar. And really, this four-song set is a pretty tight set because this is these it's like four good pop songs. So from Her Majesty of December is track one and two are Billy Liar and Los Angeles I'm Yours, both of which we talked about in our last episode. Both, both good tracks, both, you know, standouts from their previous album. Yeah, I mean, both... Both could be like singles that someone who's not familiar with the band could just like hear and be like, oh, that was cool. Yeah. Pretty, pretty uh, approachable. It's not like they put like Chimbley Sweep or Bachelor and the Bride on there. You know, it's definitely accessible Decemberist pop tracks. For sure. So why don't you take us to track three? Yeah. So it's uh, a little ditty called Everything I Try to Do, Nothing Seems to Turn Out Right. So I don't know about you, Matt, but I would consider this one of their best songs. Really? I mean, I like it. I like the song a lot. I don't know if I would put it in the like top ten, maybe top. Tw- no, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't even be top twenty, probably. It's just it's such an easy song to listen to. I love the lyrics. It's got some nice uh, organ work from Jenny Conley. Yeah, and well, you know, I like. I certainly identify with the kind of awkwardness of the main character. Right. Yeah. You got the, the the main character here seems to be this sort of like awkward, kind of like unlucky in love kind of guy. I don't know what it is about this song that gets me. I think that it's got, I love the melody. The refrain is super catchy. I think it's got some really good vocal work from Colin. I think instrumentally, it's not as complex as some of the other stuff on the album. That's fair. I could see that. It's not, it's not as, as rich as some of their other stuff. So if you were going to put this, if you're going to put this on the album, what would you knock off? What would I knock off? Whoo. 
you see, the thing is that this song is probably most similar in sound to Song for Milo Goldberg, but it's probably not as good as Milo Goldberg. Hmm. I don't know. Just, just, just throw it in there. Extra track. All right. Well, you're just kind of not answering the question. You're probably going to say, I bet you're going to say, take out Gymnast. Yes, that is exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> no, because Gymnast is important for the balance of that album. If you put this song where Gymnast was, it, it makes the album a little bit too sugary, I think. Uh, but less, less uh, I don't know, slow? Less maudlin? Yeah, that's fair. Have you ever paid attention to like the little story that this tells? I have not. It's this little kind of like uh, sexual relationship um, that is talking about, um, kind of talking about they went out for a movie and then kind of went back and, you know, hung out and did some stuff. And, but like in the back of his head, there's something sort of like awkwardly holding him back. And, uh, it seems like he also bit his tongue while they were doing it, which is, uh, yeah. And he said that it lasted too long for his taste. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe he's just not into it. He just seemed like he really was. Like, he's got this nagging thing that's like, all right, come on, what, what, what's next? Maybe he's just trying to, like, um, he feels like he's supposed to be into it, but then he's not. I feel like this is the kind of song, you know, because, like, I feel like there's bands that every time, you, if there's a band you really love and you go see them in concert, you get excited when they play, like, an obscure song that, like, only the real fans would know. And I feel like this is one of those kinds of songs. Oh, for sure, yeah. I've, yeah, I've never heard this one live. I'm trying to remember if I have. I want to say he maybe played this when I saw him solo. But I mean, this is a this is a solid track. I guess maybe it's a little similar to some of the other stuff on the album, which is maybe why it didn't make it in. Anything else on this song? I like it. That's about it. That's all I got for this one. Solid track. Uh, so the track four on the Billy Liar EP is a little ditty called Sunshine. I love this song. This is a fun song. Yeah, this might be this might be a top ten for me. Really? Now yeah. you see, we're kind of reversing this because to me, this song is it's really fun, but it's it's very simple. Yeah, and it really seems, you know, I don't want to call it shallow, but like there's not a lot going on with this song. It's just fun. Uh, and I assume it's Rachel singing with him on this one. It's Colin and Rachel singing this one. That's a good question. I would assume. Yeah, she's doing the backing vocals while she's a member of the band. So, but yeah, I mean, this song's fun. Uh, also would have fit well. I would say if I was going to put this on the album, I might stick this on as the closer instead of, uh, as I rise, as I, yeah, rise. I was going to say the same thing just because it's got, it's got a same kind of lo-fi live in studio kind of sound to it. Mm-hmm. And you can't really do that too many times on a record. I feel like it, it's, it's kind of a gimmick. And if you do it, more than once then it's it sort of stops becoming a gimmick and more becomes like a deliberate choice of i don't know sound design and uh i don't know it's you you either have to go all in or or just do it a couple do it once that's my opinion i would say this one even more than everything i try to do feels like an idea that was three quarters of the way there before it was just kind of left on the cutting room floor it's it almost doesn't sound like a decemberist song yeah, I would agree with that. But, um, you know, the instrumentation uh, is, is I don't know, feels like this just kind of like rocky acoustic kind of thing. 
that they like never like fully took to its furthest limit like they would on basically every single album after this. Well, isn't it also on this one, it's just, I think it's just acoustic guitar and drum. Oh, is that all that's on here? I think. Well, if this is a duet, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's a cool, like, Colin and Rachel combo. She seemed to be more of a creative force in the band, or at least like more out front as a creative force in the band than uh, than a lot of the other members. I would agree. In fact, I'll, we'll get to this, but uh, she's actually, one of her credits on the Tain is composer. And the only other person who gets that credit is Malloy. So, I mean, I wonder if she just felt constrained by the Decemberists, you know, as being a sort of backup to Colin's band, you know? Yeah, I mean, she does go on to start her own band, so it could be that she just had her own ideas. What do you think, like, as non-musicians, as non-people in, in bands, we are ascribing too much to the notion that Colin as a lead singer and songwriter is, is the front of the band, like, as is the most important part of the band? Do you think we're overthinking that? Maybe. I am looking, though, at, uh, I'm che- looking looking her up right now, and it says that uh, she went on to, she's had Norfolk and Western, um, but then she also ended up being in M. Ward's backing band for a while and in Bright Eyes' backing band for a while. Yeah. Well, you got to pay the bills. Sure. Yeah. So Sunshine, good song. Good song. But let's switch to the main act here. So what is our main topic today, Matt? So The Tain. The Tain. It is... A mini rock opera? Would you say that's... I would say that's a fair... I would say it's sort of their homage to, like, 70s rock. Right. In various genres. Yes. It's it's a rock opera in as much as it tells a story, and it's a, it's a, it's a song cycle that tells a story. I mean, rock opera might right. be giving it too much... I don't know, that might be too loaded a moniker. It is definitely them dipping their toes into rock opera, though. Yeah. You know, since we've been intentionally doing this chronological survey this is such a departure for the band right yeah like this kind of comes out of nowhere right yeah so i mean it it comes out after uh after the is it come out after the billy liar ep uh it comes out before actually in fact i think this was recorded before her majesty was actually released and this was recorded over the course of four days at chris walla's studio this is their first time, it seems, working with Chris Walla as an engineer and producer. And, like, what's crazy is that this is this 18-minute EP. But to me, like, it is a hugely important release for the Decemberists as a band. Oh, yeah, definitely. I would say the heaviest influence I feel here is Black Sabbath. But at various parts, we'll talk about this, they kind of shift into, like, psychedelic and prog rock. But it is a five-part single song. Right, Right. If you, I mean, the track listing is, you know, the Tane parts one through five, but... And if you listen to it on Spotify, it's one track. Yeah, exactly. Um, to what extent would you say, listening to this, how much of it would you say is like listening to five songs or like listening to a single song? Well, I mean, the, the movements are pretty distinct. Um, they they flow together really well, but, you know, they're it's clearly like delineated musically yeah that's true but i can't really ever imagine just listening to part of this oh song. for sure yeah you would never you would never like just play i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna play the tame part too well because each of the parts are not in and of themselves enough to be a whole song right uh, the, the full band is on here did you do any research on 
the Irish myth that this is inspired by. Only in as much as it's referenced in some of the reviews that I read. Okay, so I did some digging and watched some YouTube videos summarizing, uh, but overall, it's for naught because the lyrics in here are so abstract that it doesn't really tell the story of the Tane. So it's it's mostly just like using the, the language of it, but not necessarily telling the story. Is that what you're saying? No, like I just, it's very abstract. Um, it actually helps a little bit if you watch the music video that was produced for it. Right. So there's, yeah, there's the that music video that's like uh, made with uh, paper puppets or something like that. Yeah. So there was a music video done by a guy named Andy Smetanka. I may be saying that wrong. Probably not. But uh, it's a full music video. And the music video tells the story of the myth. So you can kind of see lyrically how it lines up with the story if you watch it with the video. But if you just like were to listen to it, you would have no idea that this is telling the story of uh, the cattle raid of Cooley. Yeah. Though they do talk about cows in the song. There's talk of cows and hounds and other things. Would you like the super brief Cliff Notes version of this myth? Yeah, let's let's uh, start with that. Okay, so this is based on a, a an old, 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 you know, uh, early Irish story called uh, Toinbo Coolnie. And I'm probably butchering that because Irish pronunciation is crazy. Um, I think you probably nailed it. It's probably... Uh, <laughs> so this is part of Irish oral tradition. Um, it's kind of interesting. The the Irish have a, you know, kind of like the Vikings, a long tradition of poetry and storytelling, but their actual written stuff doesn't come until the Christians show up because it was the monks who actually wrote stuff down. But this is a, a story that goes way back. It's got some big characters from Irish mythology in it, famously translated in the 1960s by an uh, Irish writer named Thomas Kinsella. That's when it kind of uh, came more into kind of like popular Irish culture. Uh, but the, the two big characters from Irish myth that play a role in here are the hero Kulkullen um, and Queen Maeve, the Queen of Connaught. Have you heard of Kulkullen or Queen Maeve? No, no, I have not. I only know the name Kulkullen because there's a Pogue song called The Sickbed of Kulkullen. Oh, but yeah. Anyway, so the story here, Maeve was the... So Ireland wasn't always a united kingdom. Sure. There were a bunch of different kingdoms in Ireland. Right. So Maeve was the queen of Connaught. And she's this warrior queen. There's tons of stories about Queen Maeve. But she and her husband, this is how the story starts, uh, were comparing how wealthy they each were. Okay. Because they were both from, like, royal families. That sounds like a really healthy relationship. Uh, and in Ireland, in old Ireland, one of the main signifiers of wealth was how many cows you have. Yeah, I mean, I, that's still a pretty good indicator. There's a lot of cows in Ireland. Sure. Yeah, I actually took an Irish medieval history. This is like actually right in my academic wheelhouse, right? Uh, but I took an Irish medieval history class, and they actually used to say how valuable a person was by how many cows they are worth. Wow. So did you guys, like, figure out everyone's cow worth in the class? Yeah, how many how many milk cows each person was worth, yes. What would you say your, your cow worth is? Well, since is? I'm a teacher... The poets and scribes were very highly regarded. I see. So like seven, eight cows? Yeah, I think it was like eight cows. Wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, in real life, I'm not worth 
eight cows. But I mean, if you adjust adjust for inflation, like if you're worth eight, for eight cows, you know, in medieval Ireland, carry that forward now. That's probably like what? Sure, a million cows. Maybe. Anyway, so the story goes that their wealth was totally equal. Except he had this one amazing white horned bull that was better than anything she had. Um, and there was only one other bull in all of Ireland who could match that white horn bull of her husband's. And it was this brown bull um, owned by this this sort of cow lord in the neighboring kingdom of Ulster. So did just everyone know like the best cows in Ireland at all times? Was just, <laughs> that must be a thing. Yeah, that's how they... be some, actually the, the cows themselves are mythological in that they were these like lords that were transformed into cows. Whoa. So like there are layers to this story, my friend, oh my but God. I'm not going to get into all that. <laughs> um, so she made a deal with this cow lord that she, that he was going to loan her this cow for a year. So she kind of flaunted around like it was her own. Okay. But the men that she sent to seal the deal, her messengers, got really drunk and screwed it up. So then the cow lord was like, no, nah, I'm not doing this. How did, so they, she, how did they screw it up? Um, they told the guy that uh, she's just going to like keep the cow for herself and kill you if you try and stop her. Oh. Which she was going to do. That's That's not... It's not a great way to do business. It's not great. Uh, so anyway, the guy says no, deals off. So then she takes her army and invades Ulster to get this cow. Reasonable. Very reasonable. Yes. Now, here's where it gets crazy. The men of Ulster at the time were under a curse. Oh, no. Where for a period of time, all the men of Ulster had childbirth pain. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, yeah. Just like all the time? Yep. Uh, well, it was for a set period of time. So she invaded when she knew they would all feel like they were giving birth. Wait, was this like a recurring curse? Or Yes. <laughs> Do you happen to know how they got cursed? Uh, I didn't get that. I'm giving you the very briefest okay, of cliff notes okay. here. Let's just assume it was probably something bad. <laughs> but uh, isn't that great, by the way? That's a pretty, that's a pretty <laughs> malicious curse. Yeah. So she invades, but... What she didn't realize is that Colcolin, the hero Volster, had the blood of the gods, which made him immune to the curse. Wow. Colcolin is 17 years old time, and he's basically uh, the Irish Achilles. Okay. So he, using his slingshot, wages guerrilla warfare against Maeve's army and is taking them out and then starts challenging them all to single combat. And so due to like the sacred traditions, they could only fight him one at a time. Nice. And he's just killing them all, right? Yeah. So, uh, anyway, he's like taking her army out one by one. And then there's this other part of the story where he, there's this like hot lady who like wants to make love to him. And he's like, nah, I'm busy. But it turns out she was the trickster goddess Morrigan in disguise. Ah, Morrigan. Right? If he just banged Morrigan. Yeah. But then, so she, uh, sort of creates this like stampede to distract him during his duels. And he ends up getting wounded and uh, his father, the god Lu, comes and puts him into a three-day sleep to heal his wounds. Okay, that sounds nice. So while he's sleeping for three days, the children boys of Ulster, who are not susceptible from the curse because they are children, take up arms to defend their kingdom. And they all get killed. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. 
Um, so then he wakes up and finds all the young boys of Ulster massacred, and he goes into, like, beast berserker mode. He, like, literally transforms into some sort of monster uh. and just starts taking out the <laughs> opposing army. <laughs> um, so this kind of, there's more twists and turns to it, but basically he forces Maeve and her army to retreat, but she does get the bull. Oh, no. And uh, he ends up stalling them long enough that the men of Ulster awake from their pain and then defeat Maeve's army. So they defeat the army before she can get the cow home? Well, she does end up getting the cow home, um, but like her army is killed. Oh. And then she brings the cow home and her cow and her husband's cow fight and kill each other. So wait, wait, wait. So <laughs> she has an army that is wiped out, but that's not like figured into her wealth. Like, I feel like as soon as nope. she loses an it's army... all about cows, man. All about cows. The army of men don't matter. But if <laughs> nope. she loses a cow... And then she brings this amazing cow, and her cow and her husband's cow fight, and they kill each other. Well, that's... And then neither of them have cows. That's... The end. Then they're still equal. I mean, like, so this has been referred to as the Irish Iliad, and you definitely do feel some similarities between this and Troy. Yeah, there's a lot. This sort of, like, seemingly petty war. Right. Gods getting involved. Cows. So, as you'll notice after me telling you this story, it seems to have very little to do with this song. Right. Yeah, I mean, based on the lines that I remember, none of <laughs> none of them are really about cows or bulls. Yeah. They do say something about a sow, but that's a pig. Yeah, yeah, to bleed and butcher your, your something sow. I don't know. Yeah, so, like, these lyrics are very... If they are inspired by the Tane, it is one or two steps removed, mm. I feel. Do you, do you have the lyrics uh, pulled up there? I do. So is it, are parts of it contemporary? Because I feel like there's parts of it that could be contemporary and not Irish. Yeah, it's, it seems myth. like this is something that's more inspired by the Tane, but not a strict retelling of it. Because there's actually like character names in the lyrics. So, like, this opening part is apparently by some character called the Crone. Part two is the husband and the captain. Part three is the soldier and the chorus of waifs and a chaplain. Part four, you've got a widow. And part five, you've got woman and daughter and then the crone again. So none of those seem to relate to what I was just talking about. No, no. Okay, so there is one particular line, and I, I think it's in part four, but... I was, I mean, it's, it's a pretty, like, like I, I've explained before, I don't really listen to the lyrics of the songs that much, uh, but I don't think lyrical analysis is going to get us very far in this episode, but in, in this one, it's hard to not pay attention to the line. Uh, let's see. Okay. Now I, sh I feel like I should look it up or else this is, this bit. Are you looking for more. cock and her kisser? That's the one I'm going for. Uh, that's part one. Okay. I actually love that pair of lines that she's a salty little pisser with your cock and her kisser. Yeah. So what is that? Do you think that's in reference no. to any of the characters in the Tane? No, like I don't the... think so. I don't think it is. Um, so I don't really know how far lyrical analysis is going to get us. So I feel like we should just talk about how we feel about each of the parts. Big picture. Yeah, for sure. So the Tane part one. That riff that it opens with is... I mean, that's just, like, a solid, like... It's so catchy. It doesn't really, like, clue you into what you're getting into. Because at this point, like, when you hear that riff, it's still acoustic. 
it's still kind of folky. Like, it's dark. It sounds like just a normal December song. Have you ever heard them play this live? One time. Yeah, I, I, they've done it once when I saw them. Were you at that show at the pageant? I think they opened with it, yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. That was the one where I had said before I, I asked that they sing Happy Birthday to my wife when I emailed Nate Query, and he said they don't do that. And I said, okay, will you play the Tane? And then they opened with it. But, like, I feel like at that show... Probably half the people in that audience had no idea what this was. You think? Like, to me, it's crazy that they play this live just randomly. I think at this point, though, I mean, at this point in their career, like, if you're going to a Decemberist show, you know the Tain. Because I think they're, they're, there's not a lot of casual Decemberist fans at this point in their career. So I would say, to me, the opening part reminds me the most of early Black Sabbath. It's this, like, slow, sludgy, riff-heavy kind of... It does feel kind of metal to me. Yeah. That sort of doom metal kind of thing. Right. Which is my preferred subgenre of metal. I mean, I'm not a metal guy. You're 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 definitely the metal expert of the two of us. Uh So doom metal is sort of down tempo, bass heavy, melodic Black Sabbath sort of metal. You know, maybe you should uh maybe you should list your your metal bona fides. What is your what are your sort of like go-to metal bands? So if I'm talking doom metal, uh Electric Wizard is a big one. Sleep Wind Hand, I'm a big fan of, uh, if we get outside the realm of Doom, um, I like Baroness, I like Mastodon. Yeah, I like basically metal that like metalheads like, but also hipsters like. Nice. I, I never really had a metal phase. It sort of just skipped it. <laughs> My metal phase came intentionally in adulthood, where I studied it academically. Now, to be fair, though, when we were... In high school, you kept trying to get me into Blind Guardian. That's power metal, and power metal is amazing, but it is the cheesiest crap in the world. Does that count though? Like, if you if you go to like a, a metal, if you're like trying to impress metalheads, and you're like, yeah, I listen to Blind Guardian, are they going to respect you? Uh, it's actually weird. I feel like metalheads are some of the kind of like nicest, accepting of others kinds of music fans. So, like the opposite of of me. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, you know what? That's cool, man. They do rock. Except for uh, there's this one power metal band called Dragon Force, which I don't know if anyone takes seriously. Are they the ones that were in the Guitar Hero games? Yeah. 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 Anyway, this opening track, is it's like got this slow, moody, drony kind of thing that they definitely play with. I mean, we're going to, I'm sure, talk about this, but the bones of Hazards of Love are in here. Yeah, for sure. Their rock opera EP does have a little bit of... I mean, it's going to have connective tissue to their their rock opera album. Yeah. I would say, <laughs> overall, the star of the Tane is Ginny Conley on the organ. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, the rock organ on this is just... Every, every track it shows up on is just... It's killer. Yeah. Or every part, I should say. But yeah, there's definitely... There's more sort of, like, heavy instrumentals on this... You know, there's really nothing on their first two albums that is anything like this sort of dark, mossy, metal-y kind of stuff. So, part two. Part two is definitely like the prog rock section. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like a fun, wild complex rock and it's where the organ really wails so speaking of prog rock like the uh first real 
rock concert I went to was was the band Yes, because uh, my dad was a big fan of Yes growing up. So like, you know that that's really the only prog rock I listened to a lot of, but I listened to a ton of Yes growing up. Like, so I was never like really into prog rock beyond Yes. But let me tell you, never any like King Crimson or anything like no, that. No, it never went any further than that. But like, just my entire childhood was spent, you know, listening to Yes. Does Prague seem appropriate for this part? Yeah, yeah. I would. I mean, the organ specifically. Like, it's definitely got right. Rick Wakeman vibes. I imagine Jenny's wearing a cape when she's playing it. It's not as prog rock as they get later on the island. No, no. But I mean, which I would say is progier. I think having a having an organ that front and center is is that seems like all you need to be prog rocky i suppose this also has that cool sort of like choir backing vocal part and chris walla actually did do some backing vocals on this so that's probably him now chris walla he's he's in death cab right he's in death cab for cutie i mean i think he's essentially like lead guitar in death cab he's the chris funk of death cab but yeah like lyrically i have no idea what this part's about it does talk about now all the marchers descend from high. So maybe this is about the war. Baby needs a new prize. Baby needs a new shiny prize. Maybe that's the cow. Yeah. Generally, cows aren't shiny, but, you know, God cows might be. Yeah, this one's amazing. Uh, but part two is just like live. This would be where the crowd goes wild. Yeah. You got a mosh pit for this. Sure. Show. A very polite mosh pit. For sure. So like part one, we start off with this slow moody sludgy build part two explodes into this kind of like big choral powerful rock riff and then part three brings it back down I don't, I don't know Irish, uh, Irish mythology as well as you, obviously, but isn't there like the hound of cool Cathane, isn't there, or whatever his name is, isn't that a thing? Like the hound of something? Of Coca-Cola? Yeah. Isn't that like a, I'm, I'm pulling this from, uh, there's a, there's a, a game I play that has, uh, like one Irish god in it, and I think that's some sort of, that's. Yeah, a maybe. move that he has, I think. Some sort of attack that he has. I mean, this part definitely is about the war, right? With our armaments bared, he comes in chain and chariot, right? I mean, like, this part is about the war for sure. This might be the people who he is killing. Because hmm. it's talking about blow me down, lay me down to sleep. These people are dying. Hmm. And this is definitely the most, I would say, somber song or part of this song cycle. Right. What do you think of part three? It's not my favorite part, but it's, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. It plays a good balance role. Right. Again, I mean, in a situation where you're you're hearing this song or this part of the song, you you know you're you're going to be hearing the rest of the Tane. So it's like, it's there's no bad part of it because it's all part of this right. song cycle. That's awesome. What do you think of part four? Okay. Yeah, I really like that part. Yeah, the, the instrumentation is really goofy. Mm-hmm. Multiple people are credited with toy instruments on the Tane, which I'm guessing that would be in this part. Yeah. They're like, like it's, uh, if you've ever seen them do this live, I don't know if you remember, but at this part, Colin goes back and plays the drums. 
and John comes out and dances around Goofy playing melodica. Mm. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, they like to do some instrument swapping live sometimes. I think the I think the organ sound like it's a I think it's a different voice in this part. Like it's got this um this cool like electric organ. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this, you got just like a lot of like random instruments going on here. The the these lyrics are apparently by the widow. And I like the there's a little instrumental like sort of break. Mm-hmm. Where it's just I think it's like accordion or maybe melodica. Yeah. The like do 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 yeah. Like that whole thing. Yeah, I yeah. could probably put that music in. Uh, in, in I mean, when I'm I editing, guess if, when if I'm you say that wasn't good enough, I mean, maybe, I'll, maybe we'll maybe it we'll, is funny whenever I try and sing a song to Kaylin to ask her if she like can know the name of a song, she like cannot understand what I'm doing at all. So I might be completely tone deaf, or she's just fucking with me. <laughs> <laughs> Part four, it, you got Bloomberg doing vocals, these sort of like hushed whisper vocals, very moody. I would say that parts three and four, we kind of depart from the heavy metal right. influence. Right. It's very th- theatrical. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of their jam. So I didn't get into the Decemberist with this album, but like, so by the time I first heard this, I was already into the band. Right. But I remember like just being so enamored with the fact that it's like an 18 minute song. Like, I just thought that was like so cool. Um, because I'm lame and like, I remember like thinking it would have been like the, so this is, this is a dumb story, but I'm going to tell it. Uh, so there was the radio station that was like doing this promotion where it's like, it was like a fundraiser, a charity fundraiser where you like give them money and they'll play any song you want. And I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll give them money and make them play the Tane. And then, uh, and then they, they have to play an 18 minute song and I would win or something. I don't know, whatever. I didn't end up doing it cause it was a stupid idea, but I just remember like, it'd be like putting it on a jukebox right. if a jukebox had every song. Right. Yeah. Which I mean, like there's, there was a time in my life where I would have done that and been like, what? This is cool. This is a cool song guys. Why don't you like it? It's one song. Yeah. Man, I was so yeah. lame. Good thing you're cool now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so part five. Darling, dear, part five is cool because it, it starts with a sort of like martial, like drum core, drum beat kind of thing. Like a marching, a marching drum line kind of thing. Yeah. And then it like goes back to that uh, really cool riff from the beginning. So it does kind of serve as a bookend really well. It's great. It, it ends with this sort of like big kind of back to the metal prog sort of crescendo. Right. Yeah. So it calls back the earlier melodies, but also like just builds and like has an amazing sort of climax at the end. It's just like, I, I mean, these guys know what they're doing. Yeah. It ends on. It also ends on like the exact same quiet note that the song began with. It's kind of wild listening to this how much more confident this band sounds than Castaways and Cutouts. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If this if this would have been like earlier in their sort of release schedule, you know, it, it would have been it would have it would have been what the band was. But like the fact that it's, you know, at this point they've had five songs, they've had Castaways, you know, we've had uh we've had Her Majesty the Zembrists. So they're they're allowed to have this, you know, huge departure of an album where it's like it doesn't define their career. 
in as much as or only in, in as much as it defines them as being able to switch genres and do something completely unlike they've ever done before. Yeah, and and it's something they continue to do. And obviously they had fun making this because they keep coming back to this. Like uh right. you know, you get the island, you get hazards of love, like uh there's something about doing this kind of thing that they really like. And it's exciting. What's kind of funny is if you buy this on vinyl, it the side A is the Tain and side B is five songs. Oh, really? Yeah. Which is kind of funny. It's like the five songs slash the Tain and it's a full vinyl. Um, but it's kind of funny to think of listening to five songs in the Tain back to back. My first exposure to the Tain was uh, you and your brother burned like a mix CD that had five songs in the Tain on it. And I, I mean, I think that's for the longest time. That's that's how I listen to them. I listen to five songs first and then the Tain. Probably because that's what would fit on one CD. Right. Right. The Tame rocks. It really does. Not a lot of bands have the sort of, I was going to say the guts to do something like this, but really just the desire to do something like this. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of bands would do it. They just, they just don't put in the effort. Yeah. Cause like this really is an antiquated sort of thing. Yeah. Like there's definitely that like seventies also like in heavy metal, 18 minute songs are not uncommon. Hmm. Like, in metal, a lot of times bands will put out albums that only have, like, five songs on them. Like, it happens a lot in, in metal and prog. But it doesn't happen a lot in indie rock. I have to say I really like that they released this on its own. Because they could have made this part of an album. For sure, yeah. But I like that it exists as this individual kind of message from the band. I don't know. It's great. I get excited about it still. Like, even though I've been listening to this 18-minute song for years, like, it's still fun to listen to. For sure, yeah, and it's it's always uh, I mean, the one time I saw them play it live, it's it was the highlight. But I would still be excited if I, you know, if they started playing this at a, at a live show. They also did this live when I saw them with an orchestra, ooh, which was really nice. Yeah, but yeah, the Tane. Good stuff. Anyway, what is our next segment, Matt? Uh, it's d- does Pitchfork still like the Decemberists? Uh, the Tane edition. So uh, I will tell you, it was not a best new music. Did they give it a seven? Just a flat seven? Yeah. Uh, no. Well, I mean, no. No, they did not. What did it get? Uh, 7.7. 7. Okay, that's still a good review. Yeah, borderline borderline eight. Uh, they, I mean, the, the review was, was all positive. I mean, I think the only thing that prevented it from getting a higher rating is the sort of inaccessibility of it as a, as a piece of music. It's an 18-minute, you know, song cycle uh, EP. So not... Not necessarily the easiest to get into. It's great. It's a great EP. I would say, you know, in their entire catalog, by far the most memorable of their EPs. Absolutely. Far and away. Well, yeah, so that was uh, that was Billy Lyre EP and the Tane. Yeah. Check out that Tane uh, music video, listeners, if you want to maybe get an idea of how this connects to the story of the Irish myth. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Uh, I think it's on, if you have the, uh, the DVD... Uh, the concert DVD that they put out. I think it's on there too. So definitely check it out. Uh, so yeah, next next time will be picaresque. Uh, and until next time, Pete's going to have a sign-off for you. Until next time, don't send children to fight your battles. Do it yourself. Because they'll all die. And if some hot lady wants to make love, you probably should. Because it might be an evil goddess in disguise. Wait, do you think that's the moral? Like, you think he was wrong to not be seduced? Maybe?
What do you think? What? What? I mean, I guess she she never really came back. Like, what was her thing? Which? What was her end game? Oh, uh, they but, end up making up later. But yeah. was she was she like trying to seduce him in order to keep him from? from I think she was the, just. I think she was just into him. She I was. Mean, this guy was. This guy was hot. So it was he just was, like unrelated to the unrelated to like all the battles that was going on. This is really just bad like, timing for Cole <laughs> She was just like trolling. She's like, I'm gonna see what's out there. Oh, there's this hot guy. He's pretty cool. Maybe I should seduce him. And then he's like, No, no, no. I don't have time. Till next time. Count your cows. Bye. Bye. <laughs>